It was Elton Trueblood, who was once a 20th century author, theologian, and one-time chaplain at Harvard University, who wrote that evangelism occurs when Christians are ignited by Christ. You can always tell when there's a fire because it spreads to other material. If a fire does not spread, it will inevitably go out. Therefore, evangelism is igniting the fire of Christ and spreading it to others. Today, we continue in our seven-part sermon series entitled The Making of a Disciple. We have already discovered that a disciple is one who has explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciple is a person who encounters the living God through his living word. This morning, I want to contend that a disciple is an individual who makes much of Jesus by talking much about Jesus. This is no clearly no better seen than in the early church. So I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Once you've found your sacred spot in Scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 4 I'll begin at verse 1. I'll read through verse 22. The priest and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a crippled and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved." When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called the men again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Oh, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. 
This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story I just read for you is a continuation of the miraculous story that begins in Acts chapter 3. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. And as they were making their way onto the temple complex, they bumped into a crippled man who was plopped by his friends right outside the gate called Beautiful. Every day, this man who had been crippled from his mother's womb was brought by his friends to eke out an existence of life based upon the generosity of church people. So the beggar said to Peter and John what he said to everyone who passed by, money for the poor. And Peter and John locked eyes with this crippled man. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I'll freely give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And for the first time in this man's life, he felt power surging into his legs, ankles, and his feet. For the first time ever in this man's life, he jumped to his own two feet. For the first time ever in this man's life, he actually was able to go into church. Prior to this day, because of his blemished condition, he was denied access into the sacred assembly of God. But on this day, he had been touched and changed. He had been healed and transformed by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, he went into church hooping and hollering. He went into church. Shouting and celebrating because nobody told him how he's supposed to act in church. He said, I have been touched, I've been changed, and Jesus has done it. And so he went into church and he was elated. Some of us have been touched and changed by Jesus, right? We come into church, and let's just be honest, some of us have been in church far too long. Because we know how we're supposed to be quiet and be seated and be reverent and be still. But my friends, I just got to beg your pardon, but uh, I've been touched by Jesus. I've, I've been changed by Jesus. He came on a rescue mission and he redeemed my sin-sick soul. And so you've got to excuse me if I just hoop and holler a little bit this morning. You've got to excuse me if I just say how good Jesus is and how much he ought to be celebrated and worshiped because I, for one, have been touched and changed by Jesus. So if I don't act the right way in church, you've got to excuse me. You've got to pardon my behavior because I have just been touched and changed by Christ. It is Peter and John who notice that this man makes no small commotion. All the individuals gather around him because they think to themselves, hey, isn't that the man who was brought every day and placed outside the gate called Beautiful? I just uh, plopped in his lap a couple of silver coins. Is this some type of scam? Can he really walk all these years and nobody, what's going on here? And so they gathered around. Peter and John took this as an opportunity to share the gospel. So they attributed this man's healing to the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Not only did church people gather around, but so did the temple guards, the Sadducees, the local priest. When they got to the crowd's edge and they were in earshot of Peter, they heard him say that all this is because of the resurrection of Jesus. The text says that they were greatly disturbed. That word also means annoyed. 
They are perturbed. They are upset, not because the crippled man can walk. They're upset because Peter and John are attributing that mighty miracle to the work of Jesus and to the power of his resurrection. Sadducees were sad, you see, because they never believed in the angels and they did not believe in demons and they did not believe in the resurrection. And they certainly did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So when they heard that Peter and John were talking about Jesus again and giving him credit again and placing all of the credit and all of the significance upon the resurrection of Christ, they became disturbed. They became annoyed. They recognized Peter. For Peter had spoken just a few days, a couple of weeks earlier on the day of Pentecost. And on that day, some 3,000 people gave their life to this following of Jesus Christ. And they thought to themselves, we cannot afford for this to spread any further. So they apprehended Peter and John and they threw them into jail. But Luke, the author of our text, tells us that because of this event, many people believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So this is a mega church. This Jesus mania is becoming a Jesus movement. This religious unrest is becoming a religious uprising. This uh, group of a few followers of Christ are now becoming a flood of followers of Christ and everybody's getting crazy about Jesus and everybody's following after him and the Sadducees and the temple guards and the priests, they say, we can't have this. So they arrested Peter and John, threw them into jail. And the next day, these two disciples appeared before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the 70-member ruling council of Israel. You and I could call it uh, the Jewish Supreme Court. It was the highest court in the land. It is Luke who gives us the who's who in attendance. He says that Annas, the high priest, is there. Caiaphas is there. John is there. Alexander is there. And some of the other members of the high priest family. Now, Luke's explanation here in Acts chapter 4 bears some uh, further explaining because he says that Annas is the high priest. You and I would render it the high priest emeritus. Annas is not really the high priest in this moment, but he was the one who preceded Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one who's the high priest. He's been the high priest for 18 years. He was the high priest under the arrest and the trials and the execution of Jesus. But the people loved Annas so much that they said Annas still bears the title of high priest. He's high priest emeritus. So Annas is there. Caiaphas is there. Who's really the high priest? He's the president of the Sanhedrin. There are some Sadducees there. There are some Pharisees there. There, there are priests that are there. Other individuals are named. This is, a, this is a who's who list of the Sanhedrin. And they gather, and it's Josephus, the first century church historian, who says that whenever anybody appeared before the Sanhedrin, that was an intimidating sight to behold. The 70 members of the ruling council, they were always positioning themselves in a horseshoe-shaped uh, their Thrones, their chairs were tiered so that the defendant, the criminal, would always stand on the ground level and he would be interrogated by these 70 questioners. It was Josephus who says that every person who ever stood before the Sanhedrin would always dress in black as a sign of contrition and mourning, that this defendant would always look down with his head downcast, eyes on the ground, as to not lock eyes with anybody of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin would just rapid fire questions at that defendant. And many times that defendant could not even defend himself, could not answer the questions. He was declared a criminal. They would uh, declare the verdict and then off they would go and bring in the next case. On this day, when they saw that Peter and John were standing in front of them, 
They thought to themselves, here are some unschooled, ordinary rednecks from Galilee. They don't have proper education. They don't know the rules of rhetoric. They don't know how to defend themselves. We are going to rip them to shreds. They asked the question, by what name did you do this? By what name did you perform this mighty miracle? By what name is that man standing healed? Now in Acts chapters 3 and 4, the name of Jesus is mentioned no less than eight times. Beloved, if we're going to have effectiveness in evangelism, we have to understand that at the core of our message is Jesus the Christ. The only power we have is Jesus. The only story we have we're telling is Jesus. The only way that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus is simply to be centered upon the one who was raised from the dead on the third day, Jesus the Christ. On eight occasions in Acts chapter 3 and 4, we find the name of Jesus. By what name did you do this? In those days, a name carried essence and character. It was more than just distinguishing identity from Mark or John, from Sally or Sue. No, a name carried power. It carried authority. So when they ask the question, by what name did you do this? They're asking, what is the authority behind it? What is the power behind it? And in our story, it's Peter who does most of the talking. And he says that the name of Jesus is the name that heals. If we're being called to account today uh, for the reason of why a crippled man is now healed, let it be known to you and all of Israel that this man is healed because of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. That's the reason this man stands before you healed. Because Jesus, that's the name that heals. Some of you are in the house today, and you know that the name Jesus is the name that heals. Because the doctor gave you six months to live, and that was 12 years ago. And Jesus has healed you. Some of you know what it is for your grandchild to be diagnosed with leukemia. And yet, Jesus healed him. Some of you know what it is to have a marriage that is on the rocks. And yet, Jesus, who is the rock of ages, he has healed your marriage. Some of you know what it is to be down and out, to be in a rough spot, and for Jesus to come and to heal your broken body. Some of you know what it is to hear from the doctor, you have cancer. And Jesus comes in and he heals your cancer. Some of you know what it is to know the name of Jesus. That's the name that heals. Some of you are here today and you shouldn't be here today. Some of you are here today and you should have been gone a long time ago. Some of you are here today and the only reason you are here is because Jesus has healed you. All throughout the book of Acts, the miraculous work of God is done to advance the kingdom of God. Let me explain it this way. That throughout the book of Acts, whenever there is a miraculous healing, whenever there is a miraculous utterance like the speaking of tongues, whenever there is a miraculous event like the day of Pentecost, all of that is done to advance the gospel. All of that is done so that you, the recipient of that goodness, you can leverage that in your story to communicate the good news of Jesus. You have been healed so you can give glory to God. You have been healed physically. You have been healed so that you can share your story And tell others what God has done in your life. 
What he's done in your body, what he's done in your marriage, what he's done with your grandchildren, what he's done with your children, what he has done with your friends, and what he's done with your coworkers. When you see how Jesus heals somebody, the reason you're able to experience that is so you can leverage that story in the advancement of the gospel. Because Jesus is the name that heals. And I don't know what some of you may be thinking right now. You think to yourself, but, but what about my family member that was not physically healed? What about my loved one, my spouse who had cancer and died? What about my granddaughter who never lived to see her ninth birthday because of leukemia? What about that friend of mine that was tragically taken and Jesus could have healed physically, but he chose not to heal physically? What about that pastor? How do you answer that? And my friends, I want to tell you that even though in some seasons it's hard for us to believe this, I think it's true in every season of life. That when God takes a believer home to heaven, that is the ultimate healing. And the reason God does that is so even in that, you can leverage that part of your story for the advancement of the gospel. That even as you stand at the casket of your loved one, you can say, I know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know that my husband, I know that my wife, I know that my children, I know that they are at home with the Lord because Jesus healed them. He healed them ultimately and completely because the the psalmist says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How can God say that? Because God knows that the ultimate complete healing of your life and my life will occur at death when he takes us home to heaven heaven and Jesus himself comes and escorts us into eternity because you realize that while on earth we have some more pain but when we go to heaven there's no more pain while on earth we have some more tears but in heaven no more tears here on earth we have some more hospitals but in heaven there's no more hospitals Here on earth, we have some more heartache, but there in heaven, no more heartache. We live and dwell and breathe in a land of some more, but we have the promise that one day God will heal us ultimately and completely, and we'll go to the place of no more. So Jesus is the one that heals our sin-sick soul. Jesus is the one, and sometimes he gives us physical healing, praise his holy name, and sometimes he escorts us into eternity, praise his holy name. But Peter is saying regardless, Jesus is the name that heals. Not only is he the name that heals, but he's also the name that saves. It is Peter who quotes Psalm 18, Psalm 118. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. In other words, what he's saying is that Jesus is the centerpiece of all history. Either you will stand victorious on the rock of Jesus or you'll be crushed in judgment by the rock of Jesus. But regardless, Jesus is the rock of the ages. And he is the centerpiece. And with boldness and with great courage, Peter locks eyes with the Sanhedrin and he says, the stone you builders rejected, he has become the capstone. The Jesus that you crucified, God raised from the dead. What courage and what boldness. He says in verse 12, salvation is found in no other name. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This is the name that saves. The angel said, you'll give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. 
Jesus said of himself in John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Paul will write in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the name, and it's the only name that saves us. Not just heals us physically, but also heals us spiritually. Jesus is the name that saves. The Sanhedrin noted the power, the courage, the boldness of Peter and John. And I want to submit to you this morning that if you're a disciple of Christ, you are never more spirit-filled than when you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I realize our theology that says at the moment of our faith, the Holy Spirit comes and fully indwells us and seals us both now and forevermore. And yet the scripture also speaks of different fillings of the spirit that uh, as we go, we are filled afresh. We have a fresh uh, touch from the Lord and we are uh, uh, filled again with the spirit of God. It's not that it's depleted. It's not that the spirit has left us for the spirit of God never leads us. But there are times when we have a fresh word and a fresh anointing. The scripture says you are never more spirit filled than when you are sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the evidence that you are spirit-filled is that you boldly and courageously share the gospel. The evidence that you are spirit-filled is that you boldly and courageously share the gospel because you are never more spirit-filled than when Jesus is on your lips. You are never more spirit-filled than when Jesus is in your life. You're never more spirit-filled when you are leveraging your story for the advancement of the gospel. That's what Peter and John are doing. They are declaring that salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. For the name of Jesus is the name that heals, but it's also the name that saves. The Sanhedrin took note that these men are not supposed to be that courageous. They're unschooled. They're ordinary. They're uneducated. They're rednecks. They're from Galilee. They don't know how to engage the Sanhedrin in proper rhetoric. They, they should not know about this. They should not be able to stand on their own two feet and defend themselves. But then they took note. These men have been with Jesus. Maybe that makes a difference. These men hung out with Jesus for the last three plus years. Maybe that makes a difference. When I read that statement from the sacred script that they recognize these men have been with Jesus there's a statement that comes to my mind and the statement is this, that the ordinary becomes extraordinary in the presence of Christ. The ordinary becomes extraordinary in the presence of Christ. I'll say it again. The ordinary becomes extraordinary in the presence of Christ. They're just ordinary loaves, ordinary fish. And yet five loaves and two fish in the hands of Jesus become an extraordinary feast that will feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. It's just ordinary water. Nothing special about the water, just ordinary water. And yet at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, that water sees its creator in the person of Jesus Christ and begins to blush. And the water is changed into wine. Top shelf wine. Not any wine that us Baptists know about, but other denominations know about. It's top shelf wine. It's just ordinary copper coins. Nothing significant about it. In fact, it's only worth a fraction of a penny. Yet when Jesus says this widow gives these two ordinary copper coins, 
She gives an offering that's greater than all the money given by the rich fat cats as they come through the 13 brass-shaped receptacles and throw their large coins into those receivers. Oh, it's just ordinary. The ordinary becomes extraordinary in the presence of Christ. What's true of loaves and fish, what's true of water and money is also true of you and me. I got to tell you, I'm just an ordinary dude. Nothing special about me. I am just ordinary. And yet, when I was seven years old, it is Jesus who came on a rescue mission to visit me there on Logan Station Road in Shelbyville, Kentucky. And he came on April the 15th, 1981. And I knelt beside my bed and I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. I asked Jesus to come into my ordinary heart, and he did. I asked Jesus to come in and to save me. I asked him to come in and transform me. I asked him to the best of my ability to come in and to wipe away my sin, past, present, and future. And what I asked for, he did. Jesus came in this ordinary heart. Jesus came in this ordinary life. Jesus came in this knobby-kneed, seven-year-old, wet behind the ear, and Jesus came into this ordinary person. And the only extraordinary thing in me is the Jesus Christ of my life. And the only extraordinary activity that I do is when I'm able to stand up and boldly proclaim, thus saith the Lord. When I'm able to stand up and be spirit-filled and say, Jesus, Jesus, it's the sweetest name I know. And give testimony to the goodness of Christ and leverage everything in my story to advance the gospel. It is then and only then that I understand that the ordinary becomes extraordinary in the presence of Christ. My friends, what's true for me is also true for you. That Jesus can take just ordinary men and women. And yet we become extraordinary when we surrender ourselves into his presence. That's what Peter and John are testifying to. For Jesus, it's the name that heals. Jesus, it's the name that saves. The Sanhedrin dismissed Peter and John and the one who used to be crippled. They said to themselves, what are we going to do with these guys? We've got to stop this. It's not, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. I mean, this fire is being fanned into flame. It's igniting other material. It, it is spreading unto others. It's not going out. It's getting bigger. We've got to do something. What are we going to do with this? Somebody in the Sanhedrin said, well, we could deny that the miraculous work actually took place. Somebody said, we can't deny it. Exhibit A is standing right there in front of us. Everybody knows this man has been crippled from birth and, and now something's happened today, something miraculous. Now this one who is lame from his mother's womb is now able to jump and, and shout and worship the Lord. Something's happened in his life. We can't deny it. Somebody else said, well, we could beat them. That tends to work sometimes. Somebody else in the St. Peter said, we can't beat them because people are praising God because of them. We can't afford the bad press of being seen as the bad guys. And furthermore, I don't think beating them actually works. We tried to beat their ringleader, the one named Jesus. You see where that got us. I don't think you can beat it out of them. What do you think we ought to do? Somebody else said, well, we could... We could try to uh, take money from them, like find them, 
make them pay more taxes to the Roman government. You know, people react to their pocketbook. And so maybe if, maybe if they don't have any money, maybe they'll just stop telling the story. Somebody else said, that's not going to work. I mean, word on the street is that the one who used to have the, the, the money and in control of the purse strings, he embezzled all the money, he wasted all the money, and then he went and committed suicide. I think it was named like Judas Iscariot or something like that. So they don't have any money. You, you can't get any money from them. They don't have any money. So we can't deny that something good has happened. We can't just beat them and we can't take money from them for money they do not have. What are we gonna do? Somebody else spoke up and said, well, we could tell them to be quiet. I mean, if they stop telling the story, the movement will die out because of fire. You can always tell when there's a fire because it spreads to other material. It ignites others. So if you put the fire out, then everything will die out. Let's just tell them to be quiet. That's a good idea. You know, that may work. I think that's brilliant. Let's call them back in. So they called Peter and John and the man who used to be crippled and they stood them right before the Sanhedrin and they said, here's our verdict. You can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. You can no longer teach in the name of Jesus. Now you can go about your business. You can do whatever you normally do in life, but you cannot speak or teach in the name of this one that you call Jesus the Christ. I honestly think that Peter and John looked at each other and laughed. I think there was a holy smirk that came across their face because they knew that the name of Jesus, number one, it's not only the name that heals and number two, it's not only the name that saves, but number three, it's the name that must be proclaimed. It's the name that must be proclaimed. They said, listen, judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey you or obey God. We just got a bad case that can't help us. We can't help but speak about what we've seen. We can't help but speak about what we've heard. We've seen too much to be silent and we've heard too much to be quiet. We got a bad case that can't help us. You can try to give us a divine gag order, but it's just not gonna work. We will explode for there's fire that show up in our bones because Jesus has meant so much to us and Jesus has done so much for us. And we've seen all that Jesus has done that if you tell us to be quiet we got to shout all the, all, the, all the more we cannot be quiet because we got a bad case I can't help it it was William Willimon in his explanation of Acts chapter 4 who said if you try to silence spirit filled followers of Christ that's about as effective as trying to stop a wave from breaking in the ocean it can't be done because Waves continue to come and they continue to break against the shore and spirit-filled followers of Christ cannot help but to speak. We can't help but to speak, right? Why? Because we've seen too much and we've heard too much. We've experienced too much because Jesus is the name that calms my fears and Jesus is the name that wipes away my tears Jesus is the name of my king. Jesus is the name to whom I surrender everything. Jesus is the one who puts me down the right path. Jesus is the one that absorbed God's holy wrath. Jesus is the one that gives my life direction. Jesus is my hope, my peace, and my resurrection. Jesus is the one who wipes away my sin. And Jesus is the one that shows me how to begin again. 
There's something about Jesus. There's something about what he's done. There's something about what he's taught that we as his followers, we cannot be kept silent because evangelism occurs when Jesus ignites Christians. And it's easy to tell when there's a fire because a fire spreads and ignites other material. And the only way to snuff out the fire is if it stops spreading. And friends, we have a story that we can't help but tell. Jesus has been good to us. So let me address the disciples in the house right now. That if you are a disciple of the Lord, can I ask you, when was the last time that you shared the gospel? When was the last time that you had a gospel conversation where you encouraged somebody, maybe it was a family member, maybe a complete stranger, but you encouraged encouraged somebody to take seriously the claims of Christ upon their life? When was the last time that you just told your story of what Jesus has done for you, what you know to be true, what you've experienced? When was the last time? Was it last week? Was it last month? Was it last year? Has it been ever? If you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I, I don't want to minimize and I don't want to maximize. I don't want to, I don't want to overestimate. I don't want to underestimate. But some of you say, the reason I don't share the gospel is because I just don't know what to say. I haven't had proper training. And I don't want to minimize training because training has its place. But to all the moms and dads of the crowd, can I ask you, how long were you trained before you started bragging about your children? And to the grandparents in the house, how many six-week courses have you taken in order to learn how to boast about your grandchildren? How many? Not many at all. Because it's something that we just share about what we love. And in order to stoke the fire, we've got to share the story. Let me say that again. In order to stoke the fire, we've got to share the story. In order to stoke the fire, we've got to share the story. If we ever stop sharing the story, then the fire will die out. In order to stoke the fire, we've got to share the story. So the disciples in the house, I'm going to ask you today to make a promise, to make a commitment. That you say to God and to one another that this week I will share the gospel with somebody. Somebody that Jesus brings along my path. Somebody that I interact with. It may be somebody in my family. It may be somebody at work. Could be somebody at school. Could be a complete stranger. But God, this week, I'm sharing the gospel with somebody. If you can make that promise, you stand up. Do you know what God can do with all of these conversations? Do you know what God will do with all these conversations? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless these disciples. I pray that you will bless them in the promises that they make to you today. And may your name be praised. Disciples, you can be seated. The praise band and the praise team, they think I'm done, but I'm really not. You know, sometimes... We don't share the gospel because instead of being fishers of men, we become keepers of the aquarium. Instead of being fishers of men, we become keepers of the aquarium. And we say, the aquarium's dirty. There's too much algae in the aquarium. 
The aquarium's not big enough. There are not enough little trees or little gadgets. Not enough pebbles in the aquarium. We don't have a proper filtration system in our aquarium. And instead of being a fisher of men, we become a keeper of the aquarium. And all we care about is just the aquarium, the box. And Jesus, Jesus has done so much for you and for me that he doesn't just want us to be a keeper of the aquarium. He wants us to be a fisher of men. It was D.L. Moody. It was D.L. Moody who made a promise to God one day, similar to the promise that many of you just made to Christ. D.L. Moody made a promise, every day I will share the gospel. Every day I'll share the gospel with somebody. And in his diary, he writes that on one night, it was well past 10 p.m. I'd already put on my pajamas. I was already in bed. I was going through my evening prayers. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. I had not shared the gospel with anybody in this day. My friend, if you were D.L. Moody, what would you have done? You may have just continue to lay there in bed and say, you know what? God understands. It's been a busy day. I've had a lot of things to do. And in fact, I'll, I'll speak to two people tomorrow and God will certainly understand that. But you know what D.L. Moody did? He said in that moment, well past 10 PM, I got up and I said to my wife, honey, I've got to go and I've got to make sure I do something before this day is over. He put his clothes back on. He walked the streets of Chicago until he found somebody and said, are you a Christian? And then once he was able to share the gospel, he went back home and got back to bed. My friend, my question is this, what would it take to get you out of your sleeping slumber for you to go and share the gospel? I'm telling you, what stokes the fire is sharing the gospel. What stokes the fire is sharing the story. You can always tell when somebody's on fire because they ignite other people. And if the fire doesn't spread, it will inevitably go out. I've just seen too much to be quiet. I've heard too much to be silent. Because I just believe that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Every person is going to acknowledge Jesus as Christ. Either we acknowledge him here or we acknowledge him there. Either we acknowledge him here uh, in uh, compassion or we acknowledge him there under compulsion. Either we acknowledge him here under surrender or we acknowledge him there under submission. But everybody will acknowledge that Jesus is Christ. What we do with Jesus here determines all of our destiny. Jesus has done too much for me to be silent. Jesus has done too much for me to be quiet because I, my, my prayer for me is my prayer for you. That Jesus may be on my mind and Jesus may be on my lips and Jesus may be in my heart and Jesus may be in my step and Jesus may be in my arms and Jesus may be in my legs and Jesus may guide my path and Jesus may direct my steps and Jesus will be all that I need. Why? Because Jesus is the name that heals and Jesus is the name that saves and Jesus is the name that must be proclaimed. So, Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. People have made promises. Help them to make good on the promises. Somebody may be here who's never accepted you as Savior and Lord. May today be the day that a crippled man shouts that one who has a sin-sick soul receives Jesus as Savior and Lord. May this be the day of healing and salvation. May this be the day when Jesus is proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray.